It is good to, to see you all here this week as well. And those who are watching online, we're glad that you can join us and, and participate in that, in that avenue as well. You know, we've got a lot to be thankful for. Sean just shared a bit early on this morning about the Christ and Youth Conference trip that the kids took this past week uh, to Milliken College in eastern Tennessee in Johnson City. And, and uh, lives are definitely changed and, and renewed in their spiritual life. And what a blessing it is that uh, those kids were able to go. And so this church is awesome to be a part of. We're going through our study uh, this summer through First and Second Peter, we come to First Peter chapter two, and we're beginning at verse uh, ten or verse eleven and twelve, and on to the end of this chapter. So, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up, or maybe you've got one of our spiritual journals, that scripture journals that we've been passing out that have the First and Second Peter and, Thir- and Jude within it. And if you don't have those, I think we may still have some more, but uh, those will help you to be able to take some notes and stuff. Let's begin by reading First Peter chapter two. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king, the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, that you endure? But if, when you do good, and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. The question What would Jesus do? Has been a question that's been around for a long time. I mean, Christians have been asking themselves that question one way or another since the foundation of the Church of Christ. What would Jesus do? However, in the late 1890s, uh, in Topeka, Kansas, in the, the Central Congregational Church, 
Charles Sheldon was the preacher of that church, and he was asking his congregation that question until it became just something that commonly they were asking one another uh, as their week would go. What, what would Jesus do in this situation? Now, he was trying to develop a better attendance on Sunday nights when they had service at church on Sunday evenings to get the people to come back. So he started writing these sermon stories, and then he would publish them in the paper as well as, as things would go along. Well, one of those such stories he had published into a book in 1896. The book is entitled, In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? Now that book, since its first printing, has sold over 50 million copies. It's been translated into 20 different languages, and it continues to grow and to spread. Powerful book. If you've never read it, I challenge you to get it and to read it. It's one of the most widely read books uh, around the world in his steps. Well, that same book inspired a young youth minister up in Dearborn, Michigan, and in Holland, Michigan, by a man by the name of Dan Seaborn. And in a Central Wesleyan church, he took that question, what would Jesus do from this book in his steps, and began to use that for his youth ministry and challenge his kids. Well, he had another friend that was in marketing, and he wanted to find out a way that they could inspire his kids to remember the commitment that they had made to Christ on a daily basis. And so what they came up with was this simple little uh, woven bracelet with the acronym WWJD written on it. And he began to make those, and as that question began to just explode through their youth group and through the community, it then has moved its way out into all kinds of different avenues around the world. We know what WWJD stands for, don't we? What would Jesus do? That question is always before us. Well, before all of that began, Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, he is also asking the same question, hoping that his readers would have an answer for that in their life. What would Jesus do? And, and he wants them to follow, as he said here in verse 21, in his steps. So what I'd like to do this morning is I want us to walk through this passage of Scripture in his steps and see ways in which we should walk and live in our lives today. And he breaks it down into to three different areas, really, realistically, when we're going to look at it. The first one is this, when you're walking among foreigners. All right? So 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 and 12 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And then he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That idea of sojourners and exiles, we might call them immigrants and illegal aliens in our day today. But that's what he's saying. These people have been fleeing their homeland because of persecution. They're coming to an area now that they hope they can kind of meld into the community and society but they're discovering there's something different about them because they're not like the other pagans and the Gentiles around them. And so he says, you've got to be careful how you act. In other words, he's telling them, while you're living there, don't make yourself at home. I don't know if your mother was like my mother, but whenever we go over to somebody's house, that would be one of the final things that she would say before we get into the house. Don't make yourself at home. 
Don't be walking around there. Don't be running. Don't be going into things, opening cabinet drawers. Leave the refrigerator alone. Don't go in and drink all their milk and those things. You, know, you just know the little things. Don't, 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 because this is not your house. You don't live here. You don't belong here. Well, Peter's kind of saying the same thing to these Christians. You don't live in this world. You don't belong in this world. So don't act like you own this world. It's not your place. Your citizenship is in heaven. I've also heard that when one is a visitor, it's polite and possibly also advantageous to, to abide by the customs of the society in which you're visiting. So you need to know what they do is common and don't do things that would cause them to, to look at it. You've probably heard the phrase, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, right? Well, there's something to be said about blending in with the crowd, but that's not what God has called us to do when it comes to the traditions and the societal culture of pagans within this world in which we live. A second century Christian, in a letter to his friend Diognetus, he described how Christians were, how they're alike and how they're different from people in the world. And so this is what he wrote. He said, though they are residents at home in their own countries, their behavior there is more like transients. Though destiny has placed them here in the flesh, they do not live after the flesh. Their days are passed on earth, but their citizenship is above in heavens. They obey the prescribed laws, but in their own private lives, they transcend the laws. They show love to all men, and all men persecute them. They are misunderstood and condemned, yet by suffering death, they are quickened to life. They are poor, yet making many rich, lacking all things, yet having all things in abundance. They repay curses with blessings and abuths with courtesy. For the good they do, they suffer, they suffer stripes as evildoers. Now, does that describe you? That's describing the Christians in the day in which Peter is writing. And that should be us as well. So in our text, Paul says that we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against our soul. And the, these passions are the desires that, that stir within us and they motivate us by the prompting of the devil to do things that we know we ought not do, but yet we are compelled somehow physically to, to go ahead and do those, aren't we? The Apostle Paul wrote this. He said in Romans chapter 6, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make it, you obey its passions. And he told the churches in Galatia this, he said, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And then he says in verse 24 and 25, he says, And those who do belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Do you catch all this? Paul and Peter have this same kind of dialogue going on about the way and the manner in which we're walking ought not to be satisfying the desires of our flesh, which it seems like this world is all about. 
We're supposed to be separate. We're supposed to be different than that. Your behavior should create questions for the people who live around you and wondering, why are you acting this way? Why don't you indulge in the things that we indulge in? Well, Peter said there in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they want to say that you have done something that is wrong. They can't because they'll see your good deeds and because of that they will glorify God on the day of His visitation. Most people are convinced that we come to church to improve our lives. Yeah, that's, that's, that's why you go to church. It's a place where you go and you learn how to live better. All right? But Peter gives us another reason. He says, if you're a follower of Christ, you are to be good in order to make a good name for God here in Union, Missouri. That when they see you, they think, man, God is doing something great in their lives. And they're going to give praise and glory to God because of how you are living and how you're acting and relating to other people in the world around you. Now note that the pagans, or he calls them Gentiles here, they, they observe our good deeds. That word that he uses, observe, actually occurs again in chapter 3, verse 2. And it has this hint of a long-term reflective observation, a very careful scrutinization of what you do in life. It's as if they put you under a microscope, they're spying on you, they're looking at you, wanting to make sure that your lifestyle is exactly the way you communicate that it's supposed to be. And so they're somehow peering through the windows of your house at night, those peeping toms, wanting to see whether or not you're actually reading your Bible, want to see whether you're praying with your children. They want to see whether you're being abusive to your wife. They're watching you. Everything about you, because it's going to be a reflection on Jesus. And even if you're not aware of it, unbelievers are watching you. Missionaries, they've gone into primitive cultures, and sometimes what they will find is that those who live in this culture that does not know Christ, they will come to the area, and if they're in a hut or a place, they'll stand by the window and kind of listen and look in and want to make sure that what you're saying and what you're doing goes together before they're willing to walk into the room and acknowledge that they're actually listening. Well, in America, we have the same thing going on. They may not be standing at our window looking in and listening to what we're saying, but they are watching, and they're watching you because you are somebody who is stranger than them. You are acting like a foreigner. You're somebody who is alien, somebody who's different, and they want to know why. Cal Thomas, he's a a committed Christian. He's also a syndicated newspaper columnist. And he writes this words. He got a letter from somebody, and he writes in response. So listen to what he has to say. He says, I got a letter from an editor of a newspaper that recently started carrying my column. He said, I'm so frustrated because I'm the only believer on the entire editorial staff. So Kyle says, I wrote back and said, let's say that you weren't on the newspaper staff, but that you were a CIA plant in the Politburo of the Soviet Union. Would you be complaining that you were the only one there? You would be rejoicing that your government had placed you in such a strategic position. Now he says, that's the attitude we ought to have. 
We ought to have this kind of attitude that God has placed us in a strategic position no matter what our job is, whether we are employed or not, if we can catch that vision, if we can see ourselves as a spiritual equivalent of CIA plants in the world of the Politburo, then I think we can get on fire for God and really do something significant. Now, we know that we have been called ambassadors for Christ. And we know that the ambassador carries with him the words of God to a different people group, to a different nation, to a different group of identity people here. And so we're supposed to represent him as ambassadors. We've been told that many times. The Scripture speaks boldly about that. But what Kyle Thomas is suggesting is not only you are an ambassador, but you're also a spy. You have been sent in into the enemy territory. And even if you're by yourself, you think, man, my God has that much trust in me to put me in here amongst all these pagans. And he does. It is our job to make a difference in this world. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, he said, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, as that light, people are looking at us, and it's exposing everything, not only exposing them, but it's exposing us. And so when they see us, they then are going to glorify God, just as Peter is telling us. I mean, it's so easy to get caught up in the American lifestyle, to live for yourself or perhaps for yourself and your family. We can't forget them, right? And without even trying, we begin pursuing personal pleasures and affluence as the goals of our lives. You want to get a little nicer house, maybe a newer car, a few more trinkets that make life a little bit more bearable and comfortable and enjoyable. And God and the church? I mean, if God and the church can help us fit into the scheme of the American dream, then that's all the better. Let's go put your heart of it. But in the final analysis... You're living the same thing for everybody else in this world, self-fulfillment and self-gratification. And that is not what we are called to be as Christians. It's not about self, it's about others. However, in the employment of God, the only happiness in which our souls can be satisfied is Him. What Peter is saying is that when people look at you and what they see expressed in your actions and what your hope is set on captures their attention. So they see a certain way of acting. Some are humble, an act of love, or some righteous act of courage, or some self-denying act of generosity, and they notice that you have something that has a hope that isn't greater than anything that they know of, and they're going to ask you, why do you have such hope? What is there about you that you put your faith in that makes life so different, even when the difficulties come? They want to know, and so they ask you about it. Where do you get your confidence? Where do you get your contentment? Where do you get your satisfaction and act this way? Now, the second way that we have to understand about walking is we need to learn to walk underneath the authorities. This kind of hits a little bit closer to home for us in America right now, lately. Peter says here in verses 13 through 17, we're to be subject to the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every 
human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up so that you can do evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the emperor. Think about this with me for a moment. The Christian citizen and their responsibilities. That's what, that's what Peter is jumping into. He says, we, we have this generation today that's, that's talking all about our rights and, and, and rights and responsibilities, they have to go hand in hand. With all you do is scream about your rights, but you don't acknowledge any responsibilities, all we have then is a revolution. With rights come responsibilities. On December 15th, 37 AD, Lucius Domitus Ahenobarbus was born to his mother, Agrippina the Younger. Now, Agrippina the Younger was the sister to the Roman Emperor Caligula. She would marry her uncle, the Roman Emperor Claudius, who succeeded Caligula and adopted Lucius, and he changed his name to Nero Claudius Drusus Germanicus. What a name. So we just call him Nero. All right. Well, Agrippina was this ambitious woman, and matter of fact, so ambitious that she poisoned her two previous husbands, even the biological father of Nero, right, in order that she could make some advancements in life. Claudius, he already had a biological son by the name of Britannicus, who was going to be in line for the throne, but through her crafty scheming, Agrippina was able to convince Claudius to name Nero as the next one in line to become Caesar. And he agreed that. Now, it wasn't long after Agrina had arranged for Claudius to appoint Nero as the next Caesar that somehow she poisoned him to death. All right, well, so at the tender age of 17, Nero becomes the fifth Roman emperor. And his reign would last for 14 years until he committed suicide at the age of 31. Nero earned a reputation as one of the most wicked, depraved rulers in history. According to the Roman historian Suetonius, Nero and his mother then plotted the death of Britannicus so that he would not pose a threat to the, the throne. And so, you know, you kind of what goes around comes around because by the time Nero was 21, he now hates his mother, Agrippina. And so, he had made four attempts on her life to kill her, three times with poisoning, one time with a, creating a ship that would break apart out in the water and she would drown. Well, Agrippina being such a, a, a knowledgeable person about poisons, it didn't work for her. And when the ship sank, she swam ashore. Well, Nero decided that he would hire an assassin who would club her and stab her to death. And that's what happened. And at 8062, Nero also executed his first wife, and Seneca, his former counselor, 
he forced him to commit suicide. Now, Nero fancied himself as a great singer. However, historians have said that he had very little talent. But he loved to dress up in costume and perform on stage in front of the audience who was forbidden to leave while he was on stage. All right, so, you know, they had to applaud him. And in the summer of of AD 64, a terrible fire broke out in Rome. For nine days, it raged out of control, and nearly two-thirds of the city of Rome was destroyed by fire. Now, although it was rumored that Nero was the one who set fire, a lot of historians believe that he wasn't even in the city when it started. But as soon as it began, he came back to the city... And, and there's that saying that, you know, while Rome burned, Nero fiddled. But the problem is that that wasn't true because the violins and fiddles weren't invented until the 17th century. However, Tacitus, who is a historian, he wrote that the very time that Rome was burning, that Nero mounted his stage and he sang about the destruction of Troy in delight. Now, because of the rumor that he was the one who had gone out and started the fire and burned Rome, Nero quickly looked for a scapegoat to, to, to blame that on. And so there was this, uh, this obscure group of people that were called Christians that already had some accusations about some of the things they were doing. So he put the blame on them, and the world began to hate and persecute Christians. Besides being put to death... Christians, Tacitus writes this about this. He said, They were made to serve as objects of amusement. They were covered with wild beast skins, and they were then torn to death by the dogs. Others were set on fire to serve as illuminaries in the night when daylight failed, and so they were covered with some kind of combustible material and set on fire to serve as torches at the parties of Nero in his garden at night. They were tied to stakes in Nero's gardens while he drove around in his chariot naked, indulging in all the revelry that he could think of, gloating over the fact of the dying Christians on their stakes that were there before him. Now Eusebius tells us that Peter was crucified upside down by Nero because Peter wanted to suffer for Christ. I think we've got a pretty good living in the United States. Because this was the ruler of most of the world at that time. Being a Christian in the United States is much different than it was in Peter's day. Now, now I really don't tend to get too political on things, yet I realize that being a Christian today is increasingly becoming unpopular in the United States. There are some who disagree with Peter because they believe that you should keep your politics and your religion to yourself and keep them separate. Yet Peter says that everything in life has a relationship to God. Everything in a believer's life is related to God, including his citizenship. And so that's why he's writing to them in this passage of Scripture. I mean, it has broad implications for Christian citizenship. It causes us to think about the poor and the person's race through biblical lenses, and it causes us to see things within that society that may not be godly such as abortion. 
I don't know if you know it, but I just read recently an article that Missouri now is probably the most anti-abortion state in the nation. That There was not a single abortion in the state of Missouri last year. You know, God wants us to make a difference. The New Testament gives us broad principles of how we are to, to respond to things that are negative in life and in our government. For example, Romans chapter 13 elaborates on the origin and the institution of government as something that God ordained and established. Now that doesn't mean that, the, that what they do are sanctioned by God because we're not that stupid, that we know that not everything a government does is by God's direct command that He wants because a lot of times those governments do things that are against God's laws and standards and principles. But Paul is saying that what God brings governments to pass, and we're called to submit to the rulers of those governments out of respect for Christ. Peter tells us that the purpose of these kings and these governors is to punish evildoers and to praise those who do good. I mean, that's the role of the government, to punish those who do bad and to lift up and honor those who do good. Really, ultimately, that's what the government comes down to. Now, the great theologian, Augustine, he said that government is a necessary evil, that it is necessary because of evil. If there were no evil in this world, would there be a need for government? Because governments, their primary thing is to establish laws to protect person and property. We learn from the Apostle Paul that the relationship of government to God, he tells us in Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, he says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So the governments are set up, one, to punish those who do bad, to protect those who the bad is being done to, but it's also to honor those who are doing what is right. And so given this kind of function, Christians understand that government is ordained of God, and so Christians, first of all, are called to respect whatever it is that God institutes and ordains. And not every nation is a republic or a democracy. Some of those nations are led by emperors and dictators. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, I'm in favor of democracy, not because everyone is equally intelligent or equally qualified to have an equal say, but because everybody is equally sinful and we all need to keep an eye on one another. So the proper aim of government is to dam up the river of evil so it doesn't flood the society. That's really what they're called to do. Governments do not save people. They are to maintain an external order in a world that is seething with evil so that it doesn't infringe upon the gospel message of Jesus that brings salvation to be proclaimed. So that's what Paul urges us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, to pray for our kings and those in authority because he desires 
that the gospel not be hindered by chaos and so that more people can be saved. So for God's sake, we're called to be model citizens and obedient to the civil magistrates. Now, we ask, well, why is Peter bringing this issue up in his letter to the church there? Well, look back at chapter 2, verse 9. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're citizens of two orders, two systems, so to speak. The world with its necessary institutions is one of those systems. And the kingdom of God is the other because it has the necessary values and morals that we need to live by. Now, it's not because these two orders have equality in their authority, but because God is the ruler of both the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this world. And when you belong to first to Him and His kingdom, then you can be sent by Him for His sake and for His purposes into the kingdoms of this world as Peter is saying, going in, living among them, so that when they try to speak evil against you, all they're going to end up doing is speaking about the good that you're doing and giving glory and praise to God. So in our way here, Christians, we are submit to the institutions that God has ordained because it is an act of tribute to God on our part. Because God has authority over these institutions. Now, there are occasions when... Christians may not or must not obey the state when they are telling us to do things that go against God's commands or when they're telling us that we can't do things that God commands us to do. Those are moments that we have a difference with our local governments. And right now that debate is raging in the American courts. Well, in Acts chapter 5, verse 27 through 32, it was raging back then as well. Because the apostles had been out preaching and teaching and, and, and performing miracles, and, and, and the chief priest and the Sanhedrin, they weren't too happy about it. They'd already told them not to do this. And, and, and so now they're kind of seeing this crowd rise up, and they're afraid really to approach things. So they ask the guys, they send the temple guards, will you come with us? We, we want to talk with you. And so here's a conversation that takes place in Acts chapter 5. Luke tells us that when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you are. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. You see, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So there are moments in life when we ought not to obey the government, when it goes against what God has commanded us to do, as Christians. Peter and the apostles faced that right then. They'd already been beaten and flogged and told, don't do this anymore. And where do they find them? Back in the temple courts, preaching and teaching about Jesus. And so they, they say, bring them back in. We got we to make it a little more clear to them 
We don't want this Jesus being taught about. But Peter and the apostles say, we're going to obey God and not you. There may be those moments when we have to stand up because of our faith. And if there's a time when our government tells us to do something that clearly and plainly transgresses the law of God, the principle of the obedience to God takes priority of the obedience to the nation. And while we submit to every ordinance of man for the king's sake, we will not be silent even in the United States when something wrong is happening. We have to speak out against it. And as long as they're killing babies in the mother's womb, we need to stand up and say it is wrong and that the Almighty God doesn't like it. As long as they're normalizing sexual perversions and sodomy and adultery and fornication and pornography and everything that's going on in this sexual world around us, we need to stand up and say, that is not good, and the Almighty God does not accept it. And as long as they are those who are telling Americans with liberty and freedom that their freedom of speech only applies in certain circumstances, then we need to stand up and say that is not right. Because Almighty God calls us to speak. When they try to tell us that our kids, not just our teenagers, have the right to choose their own sexual activities in life, and then the school provides protection for them, we need to stand up and say, that's not right, that is wrong. And the Almighty God does not accept it. There are more and more things that our world is embracing because of the passions of their flesh that they are acknowledging and saying, if it's pleasing to me, why can't I do it? Because the passions of this flesh lead to sin. And church, we've got to stand up and say, no more. Finally, we need to learn to walk in submission. He tells us here in 18 to 20, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing, in the sight of God. Peter's word here for servant or slave is, is not the usual word that we think about when we talk about servant. This word is used basically for a domestic servant in the household. And many of the servants were bond servants in the Roman government because they offered themselves in servitude to somebody else to pay off a debt or to secure freedom from somebody else who had been caught in and was captured as a slave. However, the text is bigger than just slavery itself. If you are a follower of Christ, God has called you to endure unjust suffering even at the office, at the workplace. He's called us to endure this without bitterness, without anger, without any kind of desire for revenge, but instead to do good to those who hurt us. So how do I know that this applies to everyone and not just the slaves? If you read ahead into the next chapter, chapter 3 and verse 9, 8 and 9, it says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. 
For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. The message is applied to all believers and how we respond to the injustices in our world. And it's not just to say that Christians should not seek justice through the societal legal systems. We should still utilize that as well. But Paul demanded an apology from the Roman authorities when he and Silas were beaten. And so we see in the book of Acts chapter 16, he, he, he demanded that they apologize for what they had done because they had no right to do that. We cannot conclude that Christians should simply absorb the injustices of the world around us and just let it happen because after all, we're all supposed to turn the other cheek. We're supposed to speak out against the injustices. How can you react, or how you react is inevitable, to the inevitable pain and suffering in your life is really a telltale sign of what you re- re- believe in. Now kind of let's remember some of the context here. In verse 9 of chapter 2, he said, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who calls you out of darkness into marvelous light. And in verse 11, he tells us, that, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh which wage war against your soul. So next Peter tells them you need to submit or subject yourselves in this situation. It means out of either fear or respect, we arrange ourselves underneath the authority of somebody else. And so we surrender ourselves because of the identity that we have in Christ. He himself surrendered himself under all authority and even became a servant of men. So Paul has this special message to slaves as well. And we have to understand that the slavery comprised of such a large portion of Rome. So Paul writes, he doesn't condone slavery, but Paul classifies these enslavers, these human traffickers maybe? We just have different words for them today, don't we? He says they're, they're the worst kind of evildoers that there are. And so in, in 1 Timothy 1.10, he, he doesn't advocate for uh, insurrection on their part, but just kind of live in it. We're also told to submit to their masters not only by Peter, but also in Titus chapter 2, 9, through 9 and 10. He says, bondservants are to be submissive to their masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything, what? They may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul also represents a powerful reason behind this in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when he says, let, let all who are under a yoke of bondservant regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. I mean, we're to submit ourselves not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are even unjust and cruel. And there are, there are struggles when we suffer. We have to understand that. A kite rises against the wind. And the more the wind blows, the higher it goes. It goes against resistance. It doesn't go with the wind. It goes against it. And so Paul is telling us we need to be able to stand against the persecution and the suffering and the struggles that come upon us because of our faith. Expect persecution. Adversity is prosperity to those who possess a great attitude, someone once said. So why can't we retaliate for the cruelty of those around us? 
Well, one reason, it's the Lord to revenge. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, Paul says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by, by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And also we don't retaliate because we'll lose our reward. That's what we're told in 1 Peter um, chapter 2, verse 20. For what credit is it? When you sin or beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing. This is a gracious gift that God is giving us. So because you're a follower of Christ, remember, we walk in His steps. So verses 21 through 25 tell us, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in the body and on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were all straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your faith, of your souls. Now, to understand that Jesus suffered for us, at the end of the gospel message, we also have to understand the very beginning when he came into this world. And so John writes to us in his gospel that, that Jesus was with God, the Father, at the very beginning. And even before the beginning, he was there at his side. And in that relationship of absolute intimacy in the Godhead, decided then to come into this world to suffer on our behalf. And he was cut off from his father. And I don't think there was any greater suffering that he could have ever experienced. The scourging, the whipping, the beating, the cursing. But to experience the, the separation and the wrath of God was probably the most eternally unbearable thing that could have happened. But he suffered for us. Jesus handled over to God the whole situation, including himself and those who were abusing him. And he handed over the hurt that was done to them, and instead of speaking that God would go against them, he sought their forgiveness. We need to follow him. And he has left us an example. That word example, hypogammon, it's a word that is used for children when they're learning to write. Maybe your kids could do it. There would be a piece of paper, and it might have a dash, and so they would trace it, so they would learn to write the correct letters, you know, and so they would then go over it all and make the word. That's what he's saying. He's left us a pattern that now we need to trace to be exact. It's also used as, as, as an underwriting, which maybe you've done before, where there's a picture, an image, and then you put a thin sheet of paper over it and you trace it. It could also be the outline design, so get out your coloring pages, people, and stay inside the lines. 
So Jesus has left us an example. Now we need to follow exactly what he has laid out for us so that we can walk in his steps and be with him. Now Brett Hume, who was a Washington managing editor at Fox News, is probably one of the best guys in, in the business. He's recently retired from that, but he's taken a new position. And his position now is the senior political analyst, and he's only going to work about 100 days a year. Now when the Hollywood Examiner, the reporter, asked him why he was retiring, Brett Hume said this, Well, I certainly want to pursue my faith more ardently than I have done. I'm not claiming it's impossible to do when you work in this business. I was kind of a nominal Christian for the longest time. When my son died by by suicide in 1998, I came to know Christ in a way that was very meaningful to me. If a person is a Christian and tries to face up to the implications of what you say you believe, it's a pretty big thing. If you do it part-time, you're really not living it. And in another interview with The Insider, he said, And since my son died, I have been really, I felt rescued by God and by Christ. And I have an intense desire to purpose that more ardently than I, and have it be a bigger part of my life than it has been. And when he asked, was asked, how will that translate into his life? He responded this way. It'll translate into Bible study. It will translate, I think, in the fullness of time into work that I might be able to do. For many Christians today, there's real pressure to keep your faith private. But God calls us to walk in His steps boldly and loudly so that people see us, that we are following Christ. My question for you is this, are you willing to walk in His steps? Let's stand together as we close out. Father, we thank You for today. We thank you that Jesus walked in this world and his life was a pattern for us to emulate. Father, may we follow Christ. May we not deviate to the left or to the right, but be imitators of him so the world will bring glory and honor to you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.